Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and flip to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, let me direct you to Bibles scattered all throughout the seats. Uh, you should be able to either see one or flag somebody else down and they'd be happy to pass one to you. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today. And, and if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take that one with you and, and love to talk to you later about anything that you might read there. Colossians chapter 3, we're winding down to the end of our study of this little letter written by Paul a couple thousand years ago to one of the earliest churches, a church that he had never actually met in person and who therefore needed to be told by him how they were supposed to live in faithfulness to Jesus. What we've seen so far is that Paul's main purpose throughout has been to show them that they don't need to add anything to what Jesus has already done. His death was so perfect so complete in wiping away any remnant of the the charges that are against them for their sin that they don't need to follow anybody else's rules. They don't need to observe any sort of holy days. They don't need to eat or not eat any certain foods. Jesus had done it all already. All they needed to do was to focus on living consistently with the pattern that's set by Jesus as those who follow him and want to please him as the one who gave everything for them. That's That's been his claim so far. And last week, what we looked at was the first half of chapter 3 where he starts to tease out the implications of what Jesus has done. If, if you're a person who's now hidden with Christ, that's his phrase, someone who's completely secure because Jesus has done everything that they need for Jesus to do in order for them to be secure, if, if you're that kind of person, then here is what your life will look like. It changes how you treat others. It means putting off some things and putting on some new things. That brings us to today. A hypocrite is somebody who, whose outward appearance doesn't match their inward appearance, right? It's somebody who behaves in one way when they're being watched, but another way when they aren't being watched, or who say that they feel in a certain way when they actually feel in another way. That's, that's, what, we, that's what we call a hypocrite. Relationships have a similar dynamic at play. It seems like you might say you're a relational hypocrite if you act one way with the public and another way with your more private, more intimate, more your, your closer relationships. We see the same principle at work, right? We all know there's some hypocrisy in us. We know that we put on one face when, when we actually feel differently. Can't you see that the same thing plays out in relationships, that you treat those maybe outside your family, maybe the ones that you don't see that often, you're still trying to win their favor? You treat them in one way, but your husband or your wife or your children or your parents, those that you work with every day, you've got a different set of principles that you apply there that it doesn't quite match up to your ideals. I think that's pretty typical for all of us. I think Paul thought that was typical too. And that's why he follows up last week's text, the first 17 verses of chapter 3, and all of these implications for what it looks like to live as one who has everything they need supplied by Jesus with an even deeper, more penetrating analysis at the end of chapter 3. Because it's here that he applies what he said last time to the most life, world-defining relationships for us. Relationships between spouses, relationships within families, relationships in the workplace, what you do every day. I think Paul knew that that's where we were most challenged for the old self to assert itself, most tempted to let our pride and selfishness work its way into how we treat other people. 
Those relationships are every day. You can't just shut the door or decline the invitation and get away from those things, right? They are always there. And that's why they're the ones where we're most tempted to behave selfishly, to harbor some sort of idols, to resist the lordship of Jesus. Paul knew that. That's why he hits us hard there at the end of chapter 3. He takes the three basic categories of, of, of intimate relationships and he applies the gospel to each of them. And in each case, the tie that binds together what he says to each party in each of these relationships, the tie that binds it together is his call to set aside self-interest. It's all rooted in what's already been said. If Jesus provides you everything that you need, then you don't need to be asserting yourself at every potential opportunity for getting ahead. You're, you, you, the, the, there's absolutely no call for you to try to dominate others or to win superiority in some sort of relationship like we're all so prone to do. Jesus has given you everything. The tie that binds it is to set aside self-interest, free the, the, to, to find in what Jesus has done a freedom to look to other people, to use them not for our gain but as an opportunity to live the gospel for them and to them. And Paul addresses each of these parties where their self-centeredness is most likely going to be tempted because of the specific nature of these relationships. We'll see more about what I mean in a moment. For now, if you found the passage, Colossians chapter 3, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? This is the word of the Lord beginning in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I mentioned three sets of relationships that Paul gives us some instruction for here and I'm summarize them, summarizing them as marriage, family I know that doesn't quite get it but I couldn't think of another word that captures the parent and child relationship and workplace. Let's take each of these in turn beginning with the gospel and marriage gospel and marriage let's take wives and husbands separately Paul does one at a time we'll do the same and uh, it's an interesting place to begin because that's a verse that, uh, that, that sounds about like fingernails on a chalkboard in 21st century America, doesn't it? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. I guess probably the first thing that jumps into our minds is images of Mad Men style, 1950s home, home relationships, some sort of entitlement or the neglect of wives by their husbands, maybe exploitation. Maybe we think of the Stepford Wives, right? The old movie and then the remake 
where these, this sort of idyllic community was created by making robots out of the women and, and the husbands calibrating them perfectly so that they do everything that they want. Images of these women in puffy skirts and floral dresses and perfectly curled hair and frozen smiles who live only to do whatever it is their husbands want them to do that day. Maybe, uh, maybe you think of images of abuse. And you see in Paul's words here a dangerous precedent for taking it no matter what comes as a, a matter of obedience to the Lord. Because of how words like these, which appear regularly through the New Testament, commands like this one, because of how they sound to us, to our modern ears, I think the place to begin is to strip away bad associations, ones that, that don't apply to Paul's words here, what Paul, in other words, isn't saying. And then if we can do that, if we can remove that cultural barrier, then we can start to build on something that he does say and get a little bit more clarity on what he's calling for here. So what he isn't saying when he says, wives, submit to your husbands. This submission, first of all, is not obedience. This submission is not the same thing as obedience. It's really important here to note how Paul, the words that Paul chooses. In verse 18, he uses a word we're translating here, submit. If you broke it down and traced the, the history of it, it would literally mean put under, put yourself under. When he speaks to children, he uses a different word. Verse 20, he uses a strong word for obey. That's just, you do it. Your parents say it, and you do it. There's no questioning. There's no deliberation. It is a command that you obey. That's a different word. Submission here doesn't indicate the sort of reflexive, unquestioning obedience that's often necessary for children. We want children to obey in that way. We want them to hear us say, don't go near the street, and to stop. No discussions. That's not what Paul's calling for here in, in between wives and husbands. Nothing about this statement is meant to take away from the personhood of women or the wisdom that women have to offer in the decision-making process. It says nothing about, whether, about the deliberations that will be typical or, or distinct in each marriage. He isn't saying, wives, be obedient to your husbands. What else isn't he saying? Second, this submission that Paul speaks of is not universal. This submission is not universal. Here's what I mean by that. Do not overread the very limited scope of what Paul says here. He's not saying, making any kind of statement about the role of women in society, about what jobs are or aren't okay, about whether or not women can be in the, in the workplace or have to be in the home. He's not saying anything about that. He's not saying anything about the status of women relative to men or their skill sets. He's not saying that all women submit to all men. He's saying something very limited, very specific, related to this specific kind of relationship, that one marriage. It's not universal. So, for example, all of us are part of a tapestry, if you will, of relationships where we have different responsibilities in each one. I'm, for, I'm, for instance, I'm in an authority in my home, in theory at least, over my eight-month-old son. He's supposed to obey me. Working on that. He's supposed to obey me. I am under authority in my role as a pastor, in some sense to this congregation, and even more direct sense to our congregation's elders who supervise my work and who give me feedback and who I'm, I'm obligated to respond with humility. Uh, similarly, a, a wife or woman could be a, a wife in the home and submissive in faithfulness to what Paul calls for here, but also be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company 
and be in command over hundreds of people and also be in authority to the board of that company, but also be in, a th- in, in or rather be in submissive to the board of that company, also in authority over her children at home. So there's all these different kinds of relationships that we have. There's not a statement here about women being in submission universally. It's a statement about one particular kind of relationship. Finally, this submission is not ultimate. This submission Paul calls for in verse 18 is not ultimate. Ultimately, women here are called to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What's ultimate is a submission to the lordship of Jesus, not the lordship of any one human man, even if that man is your husband. So what that means is it eliminates any kind of images that we might have of abuse and of women just taking it. If, this, if their husbands are calling them to do something that isn't, in, isn't consistent with the lordship of Jesus. Ultimately, it's only fitting in the Lord insofar as that husband's uh, authority is used well. As that, insofar as the husband calls you to do something that isn't consistent with what Jesus calls for, that authority is no longer valid in that case. Any submission to an earthly husband is a subset of submission to Jesus. So his authority wins out every time. Those are three really, really important qualifications. I hope those are clear. So we want to move from those qualifications to try to build a sense of what Paul is saying here. If that's what he's not saying, what in the world does it mean for a woman in our culture in particularly? to submit to their husbands if this text has any binding authority on us. I think what he says inevitably implies there is a sort of order in marriage, that there's, there's some sort of order that's established here by God for our good. Paul says more about this in Ephesians 5 than he does in Colossians 3. There he explains a little bit more clearly and carefully that the reason marriage even exists is to give us some sort of visual aid for understanding the relationship between Jesus and the church. There he says, he gives wives specific instructions and husbands specific instructions, both of them designed to flesh out some sort of image for us of, what, of the relationship between Jesus and the church. It's a great mystery, Paul says there, that this institution was designed for this Christ-centered purpose from the beginning. So, how, how does that image of the purpose of marriage, of the fact that marriage is ordained by God for our good, how does that help understand what Paul's calling for here and perhaps ease the burden that this challenge to autonomy represents to us? I think what, the, I think what he's calling for here is an attitude of, I mean, perhaps deference is the word, an attitude not of mindlessness, for sure, not of stepping out of the decision-making process and just doing whatever is, is said, but, an, but a certain kind of humility that recognizes that the husband you've been given is the husband God wanted you to have, and therefore God is using that husband for your good to lead you, and he's going to hold that husband accountable for the way that he leads his family. In other words, it's submission to Christ ultimately, not to that husband because you understand that Christ ordained the relationship for you for this purpose. That means that this man is not haphazardly in your life. There's not a mistake that was made. There's no way to wiggle out from under the fact that that this relationship was established by God for your good. 
I think the submission he's calling for here is more about attitude and posture than it is about any one specific decision. The decision-making process is going to look differently in every marriage. And Paul's, Paul's words here give us plenty of leeway for that. But ultimately, it is calling for a certain kind of posture, a posture that recognizes the providence of God, that God puts structures together on purpose and for our good, and that in this particular structure, in your marriage, the man that God has put you with is there to help lead you, and it's there for your good. That means that the question is less about whether it's a good thing that God set up the relationship this way than recognizing that he did set up the relationship this way. And therefore, it must be for our good and must be worth embracing. It means that there's no difference if you're smarter than your husband is or more accomplished than your husband is or even if you're more holy or mature in your faith than your husband is. is. God is the one who gave you this particular husband. And he did that for your good, to help lead you and your family. And he's going to hold him accountable for it. So it calls for a certain kind of deference. There's a lot of ambiguity, I recognize, still lingering there. If Paul had given us an entire letter just on this subject, we might, be, we might think of ourselves as better off. For now, it's just about trying to be humble before the text to try to apply it in our specific scenarios as best we can and to approach it not as judges over whether or not it is good, but as those who submit to Jesus' lordship and to this command. So chances are at least some of you are still finding this distasteful, and I get that. I understand from experience. In fact, I think that this text like this one about women and, and what we're going to see later about slaves have been a major barrier to a lot of people even coming to faith in Christ. I think more, more than, than concerns about the historical accuracy of the Bible are concerns that the Bible's teachings are just out of date, that they're culturally inaccurate, that they can't, they can't span the time from when they were first written to our setting today. And if that's where you are now, before moving on, I, I want to gently push back a little bit. Could it be that in your strong reaction against the image of a Stepford wife, what you're actually looking for is a Stepford God. Tim Keller is the first one I heard use that image for why we react sometimes to the Bible's teachings in a way that would put our culture and its values over the values of the Bible. It could be that we're unwilling to have our predispositions challenged by God's word. We want a God who's specifically tailored to our specifications that meets up with what we think is best, a God who reflects our ideals rather than ever challenges our ideals. We want a step for God. But I would warn you not to let our unique cultural bias color how you read this passage. If we were in the Middle East right now reading this passage, it's Paul's words to husbands next that would seem culturally out of touch. What, love them? Give yourself up for them? Don't be exasperated with them? What is, what is that? Every culture ultimately has had something in the Bible that doesn't sit well with it. And if the Bible is what we claim it is, if it's a source of timeless truth that stretches across all cultures, then there is always, because cultures are so different, there's always going to be something in there that doesn't sit well. And the question is, when we run up against those texts... Are we going to be willing to allow the Bible to challenge us, to 
challenge what comes natural, or are we going to make it no more than a reflection of what we already think, what we already want? Ultimately, in this case, submission, however we define it, to your husband, especially in our culture, it's, it's more obviously submission to God and to God's authority over the function and purpose of this relationship. That's, that's submission. The gospel also has radical implications for how husbands are to treat their wives. This section of the text was radically countercultural, especially when it was written. Because the, the, the context into which Paul was writing this letter was much more like the Middle East is today than it, is, than it was like 21st century America. They were writing into a time when the, the husband, the, the father, was sort of the, the patriarch over the entire family system and ruled at will with absolute authority. And the legal system did not restrain how that father, husband, would use his authority. Paul steps in and calls for husbands to see their wives not not as some sort of accessory, not as some sort of machine for baby-making, but an opportunity for Christ-centered self-denial. He calls husbands to love their wives, and when he uses that word, it's, this, it's the Christian love word, the one that evokes all of these associations with Jesus' love for us. Paul spells this out much more clearly in Ephesians 5 than he does here. But I think we can import some of his language there to help us understand what he's getting at here. When he says in verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. A, a gospel-centered love, a love that comes from someone who's been made secure by the fact that Jesus has provided everything they, they need. It's a love that's marked by two characteristics. It's a love that gives up one's own interests for the sake of the other. A love that's self-denying, that sacrifices for other people. And it's a love that's unconditional. Ultimately, what we know about the gospel is that Jesus comes to us at the cost of his life and in spite of the fact that we didn't seek him out but were his enemies when he came to us. His love is unconditional because it seeks us out when we have nothing to bring to the table. It seeks us out, in fact, in spite of the fact that we, what we do bring to the table is hostility to him, rebellion against him. It's an unconditional love. What that looks like in marriage, husbands, is that you're called to love your wife in a way that sets aside whatever interests you would normally use to guide your behavior. Jesus' love is a love that passes through the, the pain that comes from setting aside what you want for the good of what the other wants or needs. But it's also a love that is not harsh with them. Now, my translation translates that as, as an active verb. Don't be harsh. Don't lash out in anger. But it's actually a passive verb. Some of your translations may reflect that. In the original, it, it, it might be even better translated, don't be embittered. Don't be angry. Don't harbor some sort of resentment against them. In other words, when they do you wrong, which they will, you don't let it fester. You don't treat them in, according, in accordance with how you've been treated. You don't be harsh with them, even if by the world standards they would deserve it, because that's not how the Lord has treated you. Your responsibility, in other words, is rooted in the all-sufficient love of Jesus and not in their response to you. So husbands, what we want is respect, and we want affection. We want our wives to think highly of us, and, they, and we want them to show that in the way that they treat us. But your responsibility to give yourself in love for your wife is not based on whether you receive the respect and the affection that you want. 
your responsibility to give yourself in love for her is rooted in the fact that Jesus has done that for you. It's a love that pushes past bitterness. It's compassionate, and it's humble, and it's kind, and it's patient, and it bears with the flaws of the other. That's the love you're called to. I think stepping back and seeing his teachings on marriage here from the bird's eye perspective, the point is this. Your marriage isn't about you and your happiness or your fulfillment, not first and foremost. The point of your marriage is what your relationship is designed to bear witness to. The point of your marriage is that it shows the world what Jesus' love for the church looks like and what it looks like for the church to respond to him in the appropriate respect and affection. That's a humbling fact. And she remove any natural desire that you've got to use your marriage for your personal advantage, to evaluate it based on what you get out of it. That's the normal way to do it, right? To see your marriage as something that adds something to your life and to try to get as much as you can out of it. And I'm not suggesting that marriage is not fulfilling and wonderful. I am suggesting that it can't be Jesus for you. It cannot be Jesus for you. And if you approach it in that way, then you are missing the whole point of the institution itself. And this is where I would... I would really want to encourage my single friends who are with us today. One of my favorite things about our church is the high percentage that we have of folks who are not married. And maybe you're tempted to see this whole opening section as something that doesn't really apply to you, at least not yet. And I don't think that that's the case. I think what Paul is setting up here is an image of marriage that should shape how you think about it even before you're married. I think it should remind you that you can't look to marriage as a source of fulfillment. Yes, it's beautiful and joyful, but it isn't designed to complete you. It's not going to give you the security you're looking for. It isn't going to give you the perfect happiness that you want. It isn't going to give you unblemished companionship. You can be lonely and isolated in your marriage, too. Ultimately, in fact, your marriage is only going to create an opportunity for even more sinfulness, dissatisfaction, discontent, insecurity, and unhappiness. It'll give you that opportunity. If those are your motives, what you're looking for is an idol, not Jesus. You're looking for something that's going to compete with him for lordship in your heart. So by all means, seek marriage. It's a good thing ordained by God for our good. But don't seek it for the wrong reasons. Okay, that's gospel. the gospel and marriage. Paul's next set of relationships... Verses 20 and 21, I've called for lack of a better phrase, the gospel and family. The gospel and family. I I know that's not a great way to say it because family is a lot bigger than just the parent-child relationship, but I couldn't think of a better one-word summary, so that's what you've got. What's remarkable here and what's remarkable throughout this this code that Paul has given us from verse 18 to, to chapter 4, verse 1, is that he not only addresses the, the father-husband-master figure that all the other codes like this from this time period addressed. He also addresses those who were seen as weaker in his culture's eyes. He addresses those seen as submissive or under authority in his culture's eyes. And that applies to the kids, too. So, kids, I'm talking to you at this point. That means Laney and Millie and Asher and Lincoln and Kyle. I think that's all of you today. This part's for you. Paul wrote this for you. Paul wrote it even though most other people at that time would not have valued you in the same way that our our culture does, that your parents do, and that this church does. 
Paul wrote it because he knew that you could be followers of Jesus too. And he knew that as followers of Jesus, it's very important for you to know how to please Jesus, how to do what he's asking of you. Now, what Paul says for you to do is to obey your parents, and that's important. Probably you've been taught that all your life. Probably you've also mostly thought about that as something that pleases your parents. When you obey them, they're happy about it. Maybe they don't punish you or they give you some positive incentive that you want. But I want to I encourage you to think about obeying your parents in a different way. Because Paul actually says, children, obey your parents in everything, not for it pleases your parents. But children, obey your parents in everything because it pleases the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you obey your parents, it pleases God? See, God gave you your parents as a gift to you because he knew that there are a lot of things you don't know about the world yet. There's a lot of stuff you don't know. And he's given them to you to teach you and help prepare you. Sometimes that means giving you rules to obey, and those aren't always great because we'd always rather do what we want than do what our parents have asked us to do. And if you're like me, like I was when I was your age, and like I am to some extent even now, it's always tempting not to obey when you know your parents aren't around, right? It's one thing when they're standing right over you, and you know what they want from you, and you can give it to them, and they'll be happy about it. But what about when they're not standing over you? How do you treat your siblings then, your brothers and sisters then? Here's the thing. Here's why it really matters that you're supposed to obey because it pleases God and not your parents. It matters because God always sees what you're doing. Even when, you're, even when your parents aren't around to see it, God's always looking. You can't see him, but he always sees you. And if we want to please God, if we know that God has given us so many wonderful gifts, and we know he's especially given us Jesus, and that makes us want to please him, then one of the most important ways you can please him is to obey your parents even when they're not looking. Think about obedience to your parents as obedience to God and as something that pleases him. Now, I'm going to pick on your parents a little bit. Paul also addresses fathers here. This is beginning in verse 21. Uh, but I think his, his words certainly apply to all parents. So I'm just going to, look, I'm, I'm going to try to tease out the implications of his words to fathers for all of us that are parents here today. Now, knowing that parents are supposed to command their children for their own good and have authority over their children, I think Paul addresses us as parents where it hurts most, where we're most likely to show our self-centeredness and to be abusive of the authority that we have in our kids' lives. Remember, the context here is implications of the truth of the gospel for our relationships. And his radically countercultural claim here is one that limits how fathers or parents are to use the authority that they have. He calls for a nurturing authority, not one that's exploitative or demeaning. He says, don't provoke or irritate your children. My, my translation says provoke. I'm not sure what yours has, but it's, it's kind of an irritation of them. Uh, one of the best word studies that I read on it said it's kind of like a nagging uh, something that irritates over time, that you're constantly using failures to beat your kids over the head. You're constantly pointing them back to what they've done in a way that irritates them. And then he says, discourages them ultimately. The problem with nagging your kids to obedience is that ultimately they get discouraged. 
and they begin to feel as if they can't please you, as if they just cannot fulfill the, the responsibilities or the rules that you've given them. I think ultimately what he means, and the way that, that parenting looks gospel-centered for us, is that our relationship to our children should reflect God's relationship to us, the relationship of our father to us, his adopted children. And yes, God disciplines those he loves, and he gives us instruction for our good. He calls for things from us. But his love for us is not conditioned on our performance. He enables our obedience. He gives us his spirit to transform us and make us obedient through his power. Rather than beating us over the head with shame, with shame for all the failures that we have piled up over the years. This is, a, this is a crucial balance. When God relates to us, even in Christ as our Father, He relates to us as a Father who gives us rules. He gives us things that we should do if we're to be uh, pleasing to Him. This whole chapter has been Paul throwing character traits at us that we're to, tr- to strive for in our own lives. It's not as if he says anything goes. But the way that He relates to us when we fail to meet up to the rules that he's put over us is not as one who has a whip out and is constantly trying to beat us down and remind us of our failure. He relates to us as one who disciplines us because he loves us, whose love for us is not conditioned on our performance, but on on Jesus and what he offers to us. Here's one of the best vivid analogies that I've seen of it recently is is, uh, Lindsay and I saw a movie last week, saw the the Tree of Life, which is playing at the Bell Court. It's a Terrence Malick film that's very strange in some ways, but also incredibly beautiful in a lot of others. And the basic core of the film is this, is this difference between a mother and a father, and it's seen from the eyes of a child who was raised by them, difference between what they called nature and grace. The mother was the image of grace, who teaches her kids to see the world as full of wonder and beauty and joy, to love compassion, who gives rules but is forgiving when those rules are broken. And the father, who does love his children, that comes through clearly, but he's all about performance. He's all about it. He gives them stories of the way that he made his mark in the world. He tells them stories of others who who have succeeded in life, who have made money in life, who who've been known and recognized for their achievements. He gives his chief interactions with them are focused on broken rules. It's almost like he relishes the chance to remind them that they have failed, to, to put it in their face when they do, to criticize them. I think we've all seen models like this, maybe even in your own home, maybe you even see these two things tugging within you. That's the, that's the central character of the movie feels that. The rest of his life is lived out as a tug of war between these two influences, between nature and grace. And, and I can certainly feel both of those in myself. And there's a balance here, a balance that's set for us by our Father, who gives rules, who disciplines those that he loves, but who always relates to us in an unconditional love that is seen through Jesus and not through first and foremost, our performance. We're to not provoke our children lest they become discouraged. That's gospel-centered parenting. Finally then, and much more quickly, the gospel and work. The gospel and work. The final category of relationships Paul addresses here is that of, of slave to master. And this is a tough one to swallow in some ways because we have 
really concrete images of what slavery means in our country. It means it's, it's, it's race-based, it's perpetual, it's forced, it's something you're born into. When we hear these words, we hear them in light of that baggage. And we wonder, what is Paul after here? Why is Paul not saying anything to criticize this institution here? I think ultimately we wonder about the answer to three questions, and I want to quickly try to answer them as we close our time. Three questions that, get, that, that we, we bring to this text and, and those like it when slaves are addressed. Does Paul endorse slavery? That's question number one. Does Paul endorse slavery? Why doesn't Paul condemn slavery? That's question number two. Why doesn't he condemn it? And question number three is what can we learn from Paul's instructions given that we don't have master and slave relationships anymore? How are we supposed to take what he said to that institution that was prominent in his time but doesn't exist anymore and, and glean something out of it that we can use today? Those are the questions. I want, to, I want to take each question in turn. So does Paul endorse slavery? The answer to that question is no, he does not. When Paul speaks to slaves in verse 22 through 25, he merely assumes that it exists that the institution was just a, a major factor in life and was widespread. One scholar that I read estimates it as many of, as one-third of the people living in Colossae, those to whom Paul was writing this letter, were slaves. As many as a third of their population were slaves. It was everywhere. Paul just assumes that it exists and gives some instruction for how to live as a gospel-centered person in that circumstance as, as an expression of Jesus' lordship. I think that's probably clearest in his words to the masters. Normally, these codes were written to masters only. Uh, the, the, the commentators that I read couldn't find any other example, and there are lots of these codes out there of how, each, how, the, how the household should be run well. There's lots of these codes. Lots of the philosophers of the time would come up with them. But nowhere else are slaves even addressed, and nowhere else is a master told to restrain his authority over his slaves. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul addresses masters not giving them instruction on how they should keep their house in order, which is what most of the other codes were. All he says is this is what the gospel looks like for you in the, in the relationship that you have with this person. Here's what gospel-centeredness means for you. That's all he says. He's not making an endorsement. He's making an assumption, and he's giving tips for gospel-centered living in it. Second question, why doesn't he condemn slavery? I think there's a couple responses here. First is we can't assume that slavery at this time was the same thing as slavery in the U.S. 160 years ago, the kind of slavery that you can read about in Uncle Tom's Cabin or in the diary or the journals of, of autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Not that kind of slavery. He assumes uh, its existence. He knows what it looks like better than we do. And I think we can assume fairly safely, that had Paul encountered slavery on the scale and of the sort that we had in America, his, his take on it may have been very different. Slavery at that time was not race-based. It wasn't perpetual. It wasn't inherited. It was often contractual. You would sell yourself into slavery as a way of getting out from debt. It was sometimes just for short terms, a lot more like indentured servitude in this country, if you remember that from your American history lessons. So that's part of it. Paul was addressing a different sort of institution than the one that we may have in our minds. 
But I think even more, the reason he doesn't condemn slavery here is that Paul wasn't a revolutionary. Paul was more concerned that our lives reflect the values of the coming kingdom, even if we're living under relics of the old one. Paul knew that this life, for all of us in some way or or another, was going to be far less than ideal, that institutions were always going to be part of the human culture, and those institutions were always going to be tainted by sin. And he's not condemning those who may be out for social change. That's just not his project. He's not into that. What he's about is instructing us on how to live faithfully wherever we might find ourselves, including in a less-than-ideal social structure. I think that's another reason that he doesn't condemn it. So the third question, and the most important one for us, is how are we supposed to get anything out of what he says to slaves and masters if we don't have slaves or masters anymore? Not at least in 21st century America, maybe in other parts of the world. And here, for the last minute or two, I want to focus on what he says to slaves. Some of you may be able, if you're, if you're in authority at work, you can glean something from, from the one verse that he devotes to masters. But if you notice, there are far more verses given to slaves than to any other group here. That's one of his main emphases. And he's teasing out what it looks like to live in, under the authority of someone else in your workplace as one who's first and foremost under the authority of God. That's his claim. That's his, that's his goal. And that's where I want to focus. He tells slaves to obey earthly masters and to do it as for the Lord and not for men. That's, if you boil down these several verses, that's what he's saying. Those you serve, you serve as for the Lord and not for men. These, this claim has huge implications. It immediately sacralizes, makes sacred all forms of work. You don't have to go join a monastery or go off to seminary and be a minister to have work that's ultimately done for the Lord. All work is sacred because he is ultimately the reason that you do it, and you do it in a manner that's meant to please him. And for those of you who have jobs that include something that you don't like about it, which are all of us, right? Chances are there's either your job feels meaningless to you or there's something about your job that feels meaningless to you. I want you to be encouraged by this big truth. The truth is that whatever it is you're doing, whether it's we have a lot of people who work in the medical field, if you're changing people's bedpans, do you realize that you're doing that ultimately for the Lord and not for men? That he sees the manner in which you do it and that in that manner you are able to express something about your gratitude to him for what he's done for you, of the fact that you belong to him and not to anyone else. That's the claim that all work is done for the Lord. And here's what that means. In practice, Paul helps us tease this out a little bit. What it means is that we don't work by way of eye service or as people pleasers. We don't work by way of eye service or as people pleasers. Just as we said to the kids a moment ago, if you only obey when your parents are around, you don't recognize, you're not connecting with the fact that your obedience is to please God first and foremost. Similarly, if you only work hard, when your boss is around, when someone is there to see it and to clap you on the back for it, then you are not working as someone who's ultimately submissive to the lordship of Jesus. You're not connecting with the implications that the gospel has for the way that you do work in your life. If you're struggling to come up with an example, the fact we've always all been guilty of this, let me give you one. If someone traced all your activity on your computer at work, 
if you were always under somebody's eye, so to speak, would your habits be any different than they are now? I'm guessing that you, like me, would have to answer yes. And that's a fact that shows that we overvalue the opinion of other people. And we drastically undervalue the opinion of Jesus and how he feels about the way that we perform in our jobs. Our work is ultimately for him. That's how we fight idolatry in it. That's how we resist seeing it as ultimately who we are. We see it as, a, as an opportunity to reflect our submission to him, not as a reason to, not as a way for becoming secure, but as an expression of the security we already have in Jesus. Ultimately, the gospel touches everything, and it touches these deep, life-shaping, interior relationships as much as it touches anything else. It's easy to be compassionate and patient and kind, like Paul called for last week, when it's a relationship that you only reconnect with once every couple of weeks, maybe once a month, and you can shut them out the rest of the time. With that kind of limited exposure, it's easy to be gospel-centered. But when it's someone in your home, or that you run into every day at the office. That's where true submission to Jesus' lordship gets tested. And that's how far the implications of the gospel extend. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for making it clear to us how we're to live in a way that pleases you. We, we pray for the strength to do it, for the wisdom to see it in practice, for the resolve that won't break because it's ultimately focused and rooted in our affection for you and what Christ has done for us. Would you mold us, we pray, into his image, into a people that reflects what he's like to the world. We pray that you would make us a radically countercultural community of people who are actively working the gospel into our lives at every turn. And we pray this with confidence in the name of Jesus. Amen.